Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses. The next two days passed without great incident, unless you counted Neville melting his sixth cauldron in potions. Professor Snape, who seemed to have attained new levels of vindictiveness over the summer, gave Neville detention, and Neville returned from it in a state of nervous collapse, having been made to disembowel a barrel full of horned toads. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, everybody. So we have just a slight change to our regular episode format today. Instead of an opening story, what you're going to hear is a conversation that we had with Dr. Daryl Von Tongeren, who is an associate professor of psychology at Hope College. Daryl's research focuses on social psychology explanations for some of life's big questions, and he studies the social motivation for meaning, the social cognitive function of religion and pro-social behaviors and virtues. And he is an expert in intellectual humility, which has to do with recognizing and owning our intellectual limitations in the pursuit of truth and understanding. Put simply, intellectual humility is the acceptance that one's beliefs and opinions could be wrong. We're talking to Daryl in conversation with our Greater Good Science Center grant about intellectual humility. And so we're going to interview Daryl about intellectual humility in order to frame our theme conversation on that theme. And so what you're going to hear today is the conversation with Daryl, then a 30-second recap, a theme conversation, our sacred reading practice, and our blessing slightly different than our normal episodes, but wonderful as always. And now here's our conversation with Daryl. 
Thank you so much for being here today. We're really grateful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Daryl, I quoted you in a recent episode saying that to some extent, intellectual humility is about right-sizedness. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that concept and how I oversimplified something that you were trying to teach me? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got it just right. So intellectual humility is about being the right size. So on one side, we have the ditch of narcissistic arrogance, right? And so that's when we're too big in a situation. So we walk in as a novice and we expect that we know better than people who have different experiences, who have been there longer, and we just assume that we know what's best. And that's the ditch that most people are aware of, that when they're trying to be humble, they want to avoid being arrogant. But the ditch on the other side that people don't realize as much is being too small in a situation. And this is when you fail to live into your expertise, to step into the the power or position that you've naturally earned. And that's akin to just servitude or servility or just being too small. So for example, you know, something that I mentioned to folks is if I'm having like a brain surgery, I don't want my neurosurgeon coming in saying, hey, Daryl, what do you think we should do in this situation? I don't know. Like that's why I'm paying you to to have the expertise to know what to do. So intellectual humility is being the right size, not too big, not too small. And it's kind of balancing our expertise and our experience with the particular situation. Daryl, where in everyday life would you see most people sort of fail in that? And how how would that negatively play out in the world? Yeah, I see it failing on both sides. So we tend to overclaim knowing things because we currently live in a society where we we all just have to know. And if we don't know, we're we're penalized for not knowing. I think that we can stumble in and fail to appreciate the hard work that other people have done either before us or that are in groups, and we just assume that uh, we know best. So we have a little bit of this arrogance, self-centeredness, kind of one way of seeing the world through our own perspective. But I also want to say that the other place I think it really shows up is when people fail to show up, right? And it shows up in situations where historically marginalized groups or individuals or folks who haven't had uh, a seat at the table, they have historically not been part of privilege or power, they fail to be the the right size, and so they stay too small. And that's usually, you know, one of the pushbacks I get when I tell people that I'm interested in humility. They think, oh, well, that's just that's just a tool for oppression that you use to keep certain people in power and other people out of power. And I would say that's not humility. So the other place I see it show up is when people don't step into being enough of the size that they ought to be. Yeah, I wanted to ask like a question along those lines, Daryl, about, you know, you use the language of servility and servitude a couple of minutes ago. And an example you give right now is actually the one I want to bring up because I, I teach in Christian theology and moral theology. And, and one of the things that we're often really concerned about is the way that virtues like humility get distributed in ways that tend to land, at least a certain understanding of humility tends to land upon people who are already oppressed and marginalized. Now, some of the language that you use is like about like stepping into the, the right place, but there are structures in place that prevent that stepping into. I'm just wondering about the agency here. Like, how do you think about intellectual humility as claiming one's own authority? And how does one actually do that, especially when forces are arrayed against you doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to acknowledge, it. I make it sound really easy. Like, all right, everyone, just step into intellectual humility and, you know, <laughs> life gets a lot easier. And, and there's no structural barriers done at all. and done. Yes, gl- glad we had this talk and now we're all humble. So I think that any type of humility, intellectual, relational, cultural, any type of humility starts with security. And we have to start from a place of enoughness where we already know that we're enough. We already know that we're worthy. We already know that we're loved. 
And I think that that security is actually incredibly revolutionary. I, I think one of the most dangerous and threatening things we can be in this world is secure. Because I think that upends other people's ability to manipulate and hold power over us. Because yeah. if we're secure, yeah. we're saying, it's okay if I'm wrong. It doesn't matter because I'm not my beliefs. I'm not my correctness. I'm more than that. And I'm already enough. And so if we start from a place of security, we've already flipped the script a little bit. I also want to acknowledge that intellectual humility and, and really humility in general is just one of many virtues that folks can have in their tool bag. And it's entirely likely that you're going to need to employ other virtues alongside or maybe even instead. There might be times when courage is more important than intellectual humility. So if, if someone is telling me that I need to be intellectually humble and change my beliefs about child abuse, and I'm like, no, child abuse is absolutely wrong, there's a point in which I just need to be more courageous and perhaps less intellectually humble and just shift kind of what my focus of acting virtuously is. And then finally, I agree, there are power structures that make it challenging, right? And then and, and that kind of push disproportionately the, the quote-unquote work of humility onto those who are already the most marginalized and not at the, the table, right? The sad irony of writing a book about humility is the people that need it the most are the ones that are going to see it in the store and walk by and be like, oh, I'm already humble. This is great. Yeah. Or they're going to give it to Got the, it. Yeah. They're, they're going to hand it to their in-laws and be like, you should read this <laughs> so you too can be humble like me. And so, you know, not only is it a bit of a marketing thing, but it's really a bit of, it's almost like you need just the smallest bit of humility to realize how much more humility you need. Yeah. I like the idea of humility and intellectual humility as one tool in your toolkit, right? Like sometimes you have to be more Gryffindor than, than Hufflepuff, maybe, or whatever, to use the language of this podcast. Right, right. You know, you mentioned at the beginning that answer, like relational humility, cultural humility, intellectual humility. Can you say like what distinguishes intellectual humility from other kinds of humility? Like, what are the markers of this particular practice and this particular tool in our toolkit? Yeah, so I, I tend to think about humility broadly as the ability to know ourselves, check ourselves, and go beyond ourselves, right? Acknowledge our strengths and weaknesses, to rein in our selfish motives, and to think of other people as equal to or, and as important as ourselves. When we're talking about intellectual humility, we're really talking about doing that around beliefs, ideas, and worldviews. And so the ability to know ourselves, so our own cognitive limitations, acknowledge the fact that not only could we be wrong, but dare I say, all of us are wrong and about most things most of the time. The ability for us to check ourselves. So usually when we get into intellectual disagreements, we tend to respond defensively and we usually just wait for the other person to stop talking before we can prove the fact that they were wrong. And it makes it seem like we're listening, but we're really not. And then the third is to go beyond ourselves and to realize that I need to be willing to revise my beliefs and be open to other people's perspectives because I don't have it all right. And so intellectual humility is around kind of ideas, beliefs, and worldviews. So I know that one of the things that you're really passionate, Daryl, is about intellectual humility in political conversations. I'm wondering what you have to say about this feeling that many of us have that our opponents aren't being intellectually humble and our intellectual humility isn't going to get us anywhere anymore. Yeah, we tend to think that our party or our group, and definitely ourselves, we ourselves are more intellectually humble than the other party, other group, the other individuals, which data suggests are just patently not true. So whether you're left of center, right of center, Democrat, Republican, wherever you fall on the spectrum, you're just as much of an intellectually arrogant jerk as the other person on average, right? I mean, we can all kind of work to be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But it's not that one group kind of holds the, the edge of being more humble, even though we might think that we do. The second thing is, 
you know, decades of social psychological research confirm very robustly that digging in your heels and attacking the other side is about the worst thing you can do to try to change someone's mind. No one's ever left a Twitter argument and been like, I'm totally changed my mind now. What a great suggestion. Now I think differently about, you know, the, the economy. And so I just think that we need a different way, right? I think that one of the problems is we're so worried about demonstrating, I think in part, demonstrating to our own fellow in-group members that we're sufficiently enough of whatever it is of an allegiance that we hold to, that we're a good enough in-group member. And we want to prove that by taking down the other team. And so in part, I'm not even sure that it's us trying to convince other people to change their minds as much as it is us trying to affirm to ourselves and others that we are a good fill in the blank. And so when our motives are, are simply revolving around that type of self-affirmation, we're not going to actually make any headway, you know, having discussions with other people. Anybody who's experienced any form of intellectual growth or personal growth has to admit at one point you were wrong and you have grown in the past. But how quickly we forget that we've grown because we, we constantly think that we're the best versions of ourselves. And research shows when we look back on our former selves, we don't really like our former selves very much, but we love our current selves. And the irony is completely lost on us that in five years, we're going to hate this version of ourselves and love the future version of ourselves. So if we could actually treat other people in the same way, right, with the same type of compassion that we ought to be treating ourselves, that perhaps they've not changed their mind, they may or may not. And if they do, wouldn't we want to treat them with compassion and empathy? You know, I believe the evidence that you, you know, you share in your research that intellectual humility is th that everyone lacks it, <laughs> right? But I think other research shows that, you know, the right is more willing to act out in violence than the left around their ideas. You talked about the things that people are willing to fight for. So it may be that everyone has the same level of humility, but some people are more willing to act out in violence <laughs> because of their lack of humility. And I wonder, like, I think this kind of gets to the heart of the question about, like, how can humility be a tool to the other side if the other side, though they have the same level of humility, has more aggression or more inclination towards, towards violence? Yeah, right. And, and, right. And what you're saying, if, you know, one side is acting out more with the violence, the other side's going to say, well, given that, I'm not sure that in this moment, my best response ought to be this virtuous response of intellectual humility. Right. Here's right. the huge, one of the hugest risks of any type of humility, intellectual or otherwise, is the risk for exploitation. And most people who, who don't want to act humbly are like, I'm just sick and tired of being manipulated yep. and exploited. So you want to think me an arrogant jerk. I don't care. At least I have my boundaries which is a totally reasonable way to be, right? And, and, and my, my, my wife is a therapist. She also kind of helps me understand that yeah. for many, many people, making sure you have those firm boundaries might be job one, right? And I do think, especially for people who have experienced trauma, ex especially worldview or ideologically related trauma, and I'm thinking of some of my own work with people who have left religions, so like religious, uh, religiously traumatized individuals, yeah. but job one is almost like reestablishing your boundaries. I don't think, though, that intellectual humility runs afoul of making sure you have firm boundaries. Because, I, again, I believe it starts with that sense of security and knowing what's the evidence that's going to move your viewpoint, what's sufficiently strong, and then how can you present it in a way where you're not acting defensively, but nor are you acting offensively. So sorry that that was a really long way yeah. of saying it. And, and, I, and I totally understand your point. Yeah, yeah, it's a great answer. Thank you. Thanks for answering it. 
it feels like, especially with people deciding whether or not to get vaccinated, this type of humility and which values to prioritize became like living room, life and death in a way that I can never remember in, you know, American culture in my lifetime. And I'm just wondering if watching that unfolds, anything specific sort of became clear to you or including, wow, my research is right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was something, uh, at least in, in our own household, had particular poignancy for us. My wife is, is a high-risk individual, and, and so getting COVID for her was particularly threatening for us. And so, you know, I, I think a bit of our individualized Western culture of kind of, I will do what is best for me, I think that really came to show. And when people started valuing their own perspective over kind of expertise, they were upsizing. Mm -hmm. And there were times in which I was actually screaming at the TV, you know, very intellectually, humbly, of course, <laughs> wanting the experts to take up more space. I wanted the experts to be like, I am the expert. You have no idea how much schooling I've been through, how much I know this research. Just listen to me. And then I think the last thing where, where I felt like the research became under focus was people don't understand that science is a process. They were like, I want the answer right now, once and for all and forever. Do we have to like fill in the blank? And by the way, we've only known about COVID for a couple weeks. So I just need all the right answers right now. And that's just not how science works. But Humans are horrible at uncertainty. We are the worst at uncertainty, especially in times of stress or anxiety. We cling to certainty. And that just wasn't happening. And so I think we also failed to appreciate the amount of intellectual humility that goes into any type of, of uh, technological, medical, or cultural advance in any type of society. I really love that observation that one of the things that we wanted in that moment was people to step up into their right-sizedness. I think that that's so helpful. So Daryl, maybe as a final question, just as a help for our listeners, like what, what are some tools that people can use to try and be more intellectually humble? Uh, one place I always suggest people start is by seeking feedback. So we have pretty big blind spots about lots of things, uh, ironically or not so ironically, as well as about our own humility. So the first thing we have to do is we have to ask other people, how uh, humble or intellectually humble am I? The second thing is when you do this exercise, let me tell you, you need to brace yourself for the feedback you're going to get. And when you get that feedback, you should probably work really hard not to be defensive. So my very first, uh, <laughs> yeah, my very first media interview on humility, my wife and I were supposed to go to the beach during the summer. It's beautiful here in Michigan during the summer. And so I had promised my wife we were going to go to the beach and we were supposed to leave at 11, but I decided to take an interview at 11 and I promised her, oh, it'd only take 15 minutes. An hour and 15 minutes later, I emerged from our office basement after my, you know, going on and on and on about my research on humility to this interviewer. And she thought it would be clever if at the end I could ask someone who knows me well, ask my wife to rate me on humility. And so I kept my wife waiting, right, an hour and 15 minutes. She had packed everything. She was ready to go. Uh, I was well overdue. I come upstairs and then also I was training for a marathon and I said, hey, the, you know, the beach is seven miles away. I need us to do a seven mile run. Even though you've been waiting for me and prepped everything, do you mind schlepping everything out to the water and going out there and I'll run down there and meet you out at the beach? Oh yeah, by the way, how humble am I on the you know scale of one to 10? She gave me a four, which at the moment infuriated me, but looking back, uh, that was incredibly generous. But at the moment, I got really defensive and I was like, how could I, this researcher on humility, only be a four out of 10? 
And she was absolutely right. At that time, in that moment, in that context, I was a jerk. I was terrible. And so ask for feedback. When you get the feedback, don't be defensive. The third thing they can do, and and this is, I think, perhaps one of the most important things, is we can work really hard to build empathy. And by empathy, that's trying to see someone else's perspective, legitimately seeing their perspective, and tuning into the emotional experiences of other people. So imagine, what is someone else feeling? A lot of times what this means is you assume that the other person is trying their best. That's incredibly hard if you've been hurt by them, right? To assume that somebody who hurt you deeply is actually trying their best is a courageous act in and of itself. And then the last thing I would say is because we live in a a culture where the moving sidewalk is always towards narcissistic arrogance, what I'd recommend is just trying every day, just practice, 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 little bits at a time to try to become a little bit more humble. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for your time and your research and expertise. We're really grateful. Oh, thanks. And you can tell your wife that as far as we're concerned, you seem more like a five now. Perfect. Yes, I've gone up a number. That's perfect. She'll be, <laughs> she'll be happy to know that that years and years later we've inched up a progress. A, a number. Yes, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. I've really appreciated this. So Matt Daryl gave us some great tools and feedback, and I can't wait to watch you use them all in your thirty second recap. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I have achieved humility with the 30 second recap. See, I don't think you're right sized about it. I think it's time you step into your authority as one of the co-hosts okay. and be like, yeah, I do this. I do this every week. You know what? You know what I'm gonna say this time? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say I am ready this time. How about that? Oh <gasps> growth. Okay, Matt. Are you ready? I have to be honest. I'm I don't feel ready. But I yes. Just, <laughs> I can't believe I just asked that after you said that. Okay, Matt. On your mark, get set, go. So they're waiting to go to Moody's class because they're very excited, and uh, and they and they do go to Moody's class, and Moody uh, <laughs> sees Lavender with the note, and and they they drew the curses with the spiders, and there's the Imperius first, and Neville says, oh, there's also the Cruciatus, and and it's a very uh, difficult moment, and the and then he does that, and then he Avada Kedavra with a shaking hand, Hermione says, and then uh, they they leave the class, and they talk about how great it was and then Hermione shows up from the library again and says what about spew and they say oh there's spew and then the note comes from Sirius and Harry is traumatized okay that was exceptional I have one piece of feedback was what it's called S-P-E-W it's really disrespectful I know but I was I did not have a lot of time oh I mean actually sorry your feedback is correct (laughs) I'm accepting (laughs) I would love to count you in Okay. It would be an honor to be counted in. (laughs) Three, two, one, go. So they go to Moody's class and it's really intense in there. Moody's second eye can see through wood and it makes you wonder whether or not it can see through clothes. And they do the three curses and Moody is yelling, constant vigilance over and over again. And Ron and Harry are like, this was awesome. Even though both were kind of traumatized by the experience. And they go and they eat and Neville gets pulled aside by Moody and he's given a book on herbology. And... SPEW is founded and Sirius writes back that he's coming. He's coming home. I did not wonder whether he could see through clothes. Like, <laughs> oh man, I, you just—I mean, you just shook it all up for me. I, I'm so sorry. Now, uh, yeah, now it's all now it all feels gross. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, where I would like to start is like an overall conversation about Moody's pedagogy in this classroom. We're going to talk more later about imagining Moody as Barty Crouch Jr. But for now, Moody as Moody teaching the kids unforgivable curses. It just made me realize that there is sort of a thin line between humility and paranoia. So we go to our first class with Moody. We've heard from Fred and George how awesome of a teacher Moody is. He's the best. They show up. Everyone is really excited. And Moody says, I've been given special permission from Dumbledore to teach you because we live in a scary world. And I heard from Professor Lupin as to what you've learned so far. And you've learned about dangerous animals so far, but you have not learned about dangerous spells. And I am here to teach you so that you're ready. And he teaches what we're going to learn in the three unforgivable curses, the three curses that are treated with the most seriousness by the Ministry of Magic. And throughout the lesson, he keeps yelling constant vigilance, right? It's important that you have constant vigilance. And he tells the kids that he's going to teach them how to ward off Crucio because Crucio could happen to them. And part of me is like, this is really humble. It happened once, not that long ago. And it can happen again. And these kids are 14, which is really young, but they're going to be of age in three years. And they seem to go straight to working for the Ministry of Magic if Percy is anything to judge by. But then also there's just like a deep paranoia to this that we know isn't necessarily paranoid, right? And so as a child and grandchild of people with like real trauma, this is something I recognize in my own life. But I'm wondering what you think is Moody in part motivated by a humility that 
this could happen again. Bad things happen all the time. Or is this inappropriate to be teaching to children? I mean, one thing I would want to ask is like, is the line, you said that there's a kind of a blurry line between humility and paranoia, mm-hmm. right? But I don't, I don't know if that's where the blurry line is <laughs> based, <laughs> okay. based on the way you describe it, right? Because it seems to me that like humility is about how you decide to engage your fears rather than whether you decide to or the degree to which you engage them. Does that make sense? Like, I think that my concern with Moody's in this chapter, and again, we're we're thinking about him as Moody, not as Barty Crouch, right? But my concern with Moody in this chapter is not what he's afraid of, which he's right to be afraid of. And I think that, right, it's how little he imagines the experience of his students in the class receiving his instruction. And to me, that's the place where he's not humble, not because he has ideas about what he should be afraid of or what the children should be afraid of, but because he imagines how everyone in the room will respond or how they ought to respond or the right way to teach them this. Does that make sense? So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there is a blurry line between humility and paranoia. But in this chapter, I'm less concerned with like whether he has a legitimate fear or a paranoid fear and more concerned about having established this a fear that he needs to respond to. His lack of humility is about the method of his teaching rather than, like, what he feels is necessary to teach. Although you're right. I mean, now that I talk myself way through it, you're right. Like, there is also potentially a lack of humility about what you decide to teach in that class, right? Yeah. And so that's my follow-up question. Like, what is the humble thing to teach in that class? Being afraid of what he's afraid of. Or how is the humble way to teach, maybe? Right. Right? Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. If we're saying that, that he has a legitimate fear here, and what we know is because we do have the benefit of hindsight, you and I having read these books already before, we know that his fears are well-grounded, that Mm -hmm. the students in this class will be subject to all of these curses, some of them before the book is done, Mm -hmm. right? So he's, you know, he's not paranoid. He's actually got the right fear. The question is how to do it. And I think actively torturing a creature in the class or actively killing a creature in the class is going to affect students in a way that he should be paying better attention to. Yeah. Like, this is the lack of humility part. He's like, you need to learn this because it's a real threat. Dumbledore agrees with me. The place where he gets where he fails his intellectual humility is like, therefore, any way I choose to teach it is the right way. Right. (laughs) Right? Is acceptable. Right. Is acceptable. Like the ends justify the means. He's like, he could be right about the fact that this is something that needs to be taught. That doesn't mean that every way he might choose to teach it is the right way to teach it. Yeah. And any student that we here described specifically, is traumatized by this. Mm. Neville is horrified by Crucio. Hermione is horrified by Neville's horror, right? She's so worried about Neville. Ron hates spiders, and one gets engorged right in front of him, and he pushes his seat back. And then Harry is, you know, reliving this trauma with his mom. And so... Yeah, there's like no humility about the impact that this is going to have on the kids, especially because he seems to know, at least with Neville and Harry, that this is going to fall on the kids. And yeah, it doesn't seem to have any intellectual humility or any interest in trying to empathize with how the kids will react. Yeah. And actually, I think that's a really important part of intellectual humility. If we could make a short visit to to Etymology Quarter. Yes, please. We've already talked about humility, that it means like like aloneness, closeness to the earth or whatever. 
But the word intellectual comes from intellect, which actually comes from the Latin word legere, which can mean to read, but it can also mean like it comes from an older root, which means like to discern or to select or to like gather carefully. And I think that's if there's a failure of intellectual humility, and I think there is with Moody, it's not ought the children to be taught this thing. It's the selection part, like, okay, the careful part, like, how do I do it carefully in the full sense of that word carefully, like judiciously, but also with some care, right? Like anticipating how he knows who's in the class, right? The fact that he says you're long bottom, right? Oh, I can tell that the student in the room who's trembling when they say the word cruciatus, that must be long bottom because I know the history of his family. He's not surprised by that response. He knows that's that's what the response will be. And he does it anyway. To me, that seems like a failure of of discernment, a failure of like proper selection, deciding how you're going to go about this judiciously. So you allow space for others to be, you know, the Daryl used the language of right-sized, like Harry's response is right-sized. That's how a person whose parents were killed by this curse ought to respond. Neville's response is right-sized. That's how a person whose parents were tortured in this way ought to respond. Like acknowledging beforehand what will probably be the right-sizedness of their response means that Moody's right-sizedness should take the form of more discernment, more care, more judiciousness. I think we don't just see Neville right-sized in this chapter. I think we see him right-sized and fully Gryffindor brave. He is raising his hand while scared to answer that Crucio is one of the three unforgivable curses. And I just love that, that he is like, I'm entitled to this answer. This this question has defined so much of my life. And even though I'm scared of it and going to be trembling by the impact of watching it in front of me, it just feels like there's something in him that needs to be the one to say it and to step into, I'm the one who's the authority on this curse in this room. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And and especially because, you know, I don't know if we're ready to step away from Moody yet, but especially because the chapter opens, as these chapters often do, with like a quick fact, which is supposed to be a little bit humorous. And what we hear is that Snape, who is traditionally and historically very cruel towards Neville, has continued being cruel to Neville. And after Neville melts his cauldron, his sixth cauldron, Snape is you know, just punishes him, right? And I think that reveals, again, Snape's lack of intellectual humility, like his unwillingness to be curious about why his student may be failing, right? And just to react with punishment. And that also, the fact that this is the kind of treatment that that Neville gets in other classes, that speaks to his courage in this moment, because he's willing to raise his hand and speak and own his own history and know he's an authority in that space, even when other teachers at the school abusive and are cruel to him in the way that that Snape has been. Yeah. And it's why I also think at the end of the chapter, it's so beautiful that Professor Sprout has said this lovely thing to Moody that he's really good at herbology. And again, it's him finding this right space for himself. Like, this is the thing I'm good at. And let me invest my time here. Yeah, Like, this is a thing that I'm talented at. I do feel like this chapter is a turning point for Neville in a lot of interesting ways. And just a moment of absolute genius of Hermione, right? Moody is now showing Crucio after Neville has correctly answered the question that it's another one of the unforgivable curses. And Moody is demonstrating it by, you know, having made a a spider bigger and torturing it. 
And Hermione yells, stop it. And everybody sort of thinks that Hermione is talking because she doesn't like watching a spider get tortured, which seems fair to me. But then it turns out that she's looking at Neville and she's seeing that Neville's horrified by it. And we know that it's because Neville's imagining this happening to his parents. But I just love that Hermione is protecting Neville without calling attention to the fact that she's protecting Neville. And yeah, just this like really radical empathy, right? She has so much on her mind and she's still observing those around her. Yeah, I think that's great. That's exactly the kind of right-sizedness, right? She steps into some authority or she steps into some confidence about what's right, but it's because she is able to have empathy, the kind of empathy Daryl talked about, imagining herself in the place of others. And we see other folks, you know, make this mistake later on. I think when Ron is talking to Harry kind of excitedly about how effective the Avada Kedavra was, he doesn't notice until a couple phrases too late the impact that's having on Harry. Yeah. Right, which means that he was not being right sized and he wasn't being right sized because he was n- not approaching that conversation with some empathy. He wasn't in the beginning imagining what it might be like for Harry. Yeah. Okay, Matt. So is Hermione intellectually humble when she arrives at the end of divination homework and is like, I figured it out, SPEW. I'm going to make an argument for yes. She has done her research. She has been in the library nonstop. And I find her proposals very sensible. She wants to get a house elf as a representative in the ministry. She has a lot of ideas. What is not intellectually humble is that she's like, Ron and Harry, you are now members. I don't think she's being intellectually humble, but I think that's okay. Because like, as mm-hmm. Daryl said in the talk, it's just one of the tools you need to use and sometimes use different ones. I think she's being courageous, Gryffindor courageous. I think she's being ambitious. And I think those are those are also virtues and also tools we need to use. Like, I think in terms of right-sizedness, I know Hermione's brilliant, but right now she's still like a school-aged child who wants to transform wizarding society. I, that's probably not right-sized. On the other hand, I think movements for justice, and I think that this is some of what Daryl was suggesting, I think sometimes movements for justice have to imagine possibilities beyond what the present world looks like, right? And like part of what a movement for justice says is that the size that we are given is not the right size, Uh (laughs) right? And so we're going to resist it and push against it, which is why intellectual humility or humility in general is not a universal tool. It's one tool among many. So... So I don't think Hermione's being humble here, and I don't think it's a problem. I think she's doing the right thing. I think the last thing, and this is again around this phrase that Daryl used about right-sizedness, is about how intellectual humility can also, maybe it can save us from punishing ourselves, right? One of the things that happens at the end of the chapter is that Hedwig finally comes back with a message from Sirius. You know, the message that Harry's been waiting for basically since the beginning of this book. I mean, I looked at the chapters today, and you know, we're almost a full Sorcerer's Stone into book four. <laughs> and the year has just started. And and the letter that he wrote in the what in the second chapter of the book is is only now being responded to. So he's been we've been waiting a long time. Harry's been waiting a long time to hear from Sirius. And it began with this real genuine concern about the pain in his scar. And what Sirius responds with is uncertainty. The thing that Daryl said that we don't like. I think an appropriate response probably says, like, this is worrisome. I'm going to come north. The implication there being, or at least the way 
Harry interprets it is that Sirius is coming back up, putting himself at risk to come back to the United Kingdom and and get back into the fight. The thing that's not intellectually humble about Harry's response is that he makes it his fault, right? He interprets it as his his fault. He's like, oh, I shouldn't have told him because now Sirius is going to come here and Sirius is going to be at risk and Sirius could be in trouble and that's going to be all down to me. Right. And I think this is happening because of what just happened to him in the classroom. Right. He has been re-traumatized because of what happened in Moody's classroom. He was brought to remember and to recall what happened to his parents. Voldemort killed his mother and and his father trying to get to him like he internalized his parents death as his own fault. And so. The the kind of weight of that memory has made him interpret this situation as like, oh, Sirius is going to die and it's going to be my fault again. Right. Mm. And it's completely understandable. That's the way trauma works, that it would lead him to this interpretation. But what I want for him is to say, like, no, I'm a kid. People are supposed to take care of me. It yeah. won't be my fault if Sirius comes back like that would be more right sized. I want him to kind of be free enough from the traumatic memories so he can see this situation as like, no, Sirius is an adult making his own choice and he's coming because he cares for me. And if something happens to him, it won't be my fault because I deserve protection, right? Like that's the reaction I want him to have, but but he can't have it because the weight of his trauma makes him take more responsibility for it than he ought to. And I think that Sirius is also stepping into his right-sizedness in a really beautiful way, right? He is saying, I'm free and I'm a godfather. And that means yeah. I come. Yep. And I think that Harry has an abundant lack of this in his life, right? Like, yeah. we've talked about this. Dumbledore sort of, in my opinion, left Harry to rot at the Dursleys. And there's just like a real lack of care, acute care of Harry. There's a lot of strategy around Harry and a lot of like effort to keeping him alive, but there's no effort to yeah. like respond to concerns in a in a heartfelt way. And I love that Sirius is stepping into this so beautifully. And I I think part of what Harry is responding to is in addition to this relived trauma with his parents, is he's never had an adult react like this. Yeah. He's never had an adult flip a switch into emergency mode on his behalf. Dumbledore, even when he intervenes in the first three books, there's like a relaxed air to Dumbledore that we can respect, but also like does not clue a child into the fact that there are certain things that should get an emergency reaction out of an adult. And I I understand why Harry is like, I do not recognize this. But I love that Sirius is like, this is not up for conversation. I don't care what your opinion is. I'm coming. I'm on my way. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way from Sirius's position, but I think you're absolutely right. That is him stepping into his role. And that is the kind of intellectual humility that Daryl is talking about, too. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So Matt, we are now going to do Havruta which is a sacred practice of question asking. So part of what I love about Chavruta is at its heart that it is an intellectually humble practice. We ask a question and then we offer an answer in the question that we know is an incomplete answer. And it is an invitation to our conversation partner to add to our answer. And I I really love that. And so I brought a complicated question, one that I feel like this is the chapter to have this conversation. And my question is, we know that Barty Crouch Jr. is actually the person in this room and that it is merely the appearance of Mad-Eye Moody. And so how are we supposed to think about this scene as Barty Crouch Jr. teaching these children, a devout follower of Voldemort and Death Eater, teaching these children to be constantly vigilant and about these three practices. And I outlined what I think all of the options are (laughs) for how we can think about this. Option one is that we can think about him as grooming the kids, that there is something exciting about being a Death Eater, and that there's something psychological about talking to them on their own terms but getting them excited about the power involved in being a Death Eater, someone who's willing to use these curses. And so this is a first step in a, like, seduction process of trying to get them to his side. Option two is that he's threatening them with what's coming their way, like, this is what you're going to be up against. And option three, which is just the option that I've read (laughs) the most frequently, is that he's being a really effective spy, right? He has this 
job that he's performing, which is pretending to be Mad-Eye Moody. And this is exactly what he thinks Mad-Eye Moody would do in the situation. And there's some arrogance to that. It doesn't matter if he teaches the kids about the unforgivable curses. They're not actually going to be able to, to fight it. And so he's just being a good spy. So my answer is the spy answer, that he is playing a role and doesn't have enough respect for these kids that it'll even matter if he gives them this information. But I think that that answer is incomplete. And so I would love to hear your thoughts. So what I like about your answer, Vanessa, is what you said at the end, which is that your answer is incomplete. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it's all of the things you said, and it can be all the things you said, plus maybe another thing. Yes, good. Right? What's the plus? Uh, this is not and to excuse his behavior, to be clear. Yeah. But folks who impose trauma upon others often are traumatized themselves. Yeah. Barty joined the Death Eaters of his own free will. And so, like, I'm not, again, excusing any of his behavior, but we know the kind of leader Voldemort is. We know the terror that they live under. We also know that Barty Crouch, we learn later on that Barty Crouch Jr. participated in the torture of Neville's parents, right? And I think that there are probably complicated movements of grief and shame and then overwhelming that grief and shame with pride and aggression. And like, like I think all those things are probably moving around inside of the human body of Barty Crouch Jr. And that he might feel a real impulse of regret or shame that he then stifles with anger and fierceness, that he then responds to to Neville actually with a kernel of genuine compassion, which he then interprets as being a good spy, which actually is him trying to be a good spy because he is loyal to Voldemort. I think all these things are folded in. So I think all your answers are correct. And it, it not only does it not need to be any one of them, it can't be only one of them because just the nature of what Barty Crouch has been through, I think that he's I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. But the interesting thing about the Horcrux story, the Horcrux idea, is that your soul gets ripped apart, right? And you leave yourself in other places. I think also that happens to folks internally, whether or not they're Horcruxes. Like, people can be divided against themselves when they are complicit in awful things, but also have been the victim of awful things. I think a lot of ways, Barty might be divided against himself here. Mm. And... From moment to moment, he's every one of the things you named, plus other things. And that's just another sign of how deeply broken a person he is, which is you know, the same way that Voldemort is literally divided <laughs> like, yeah. and spread it over the world as a sign of how deeply broken a person he is and how the violence he causes is part of what breaks him up. Yeah, Matt, you know, I really love the conclusion that we came to last week, which is that Mad-Eye and Barty Crouch Jr. would behave the exact same way, just for opposite reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mad-Eye would be maybe giving a similar lesson for very different reasons, right? Out of like a different kind of trauma, of an inverse trauma, or maybe even the same trauma of like being at the hands of Voldemort, right? You can be on the wrong side of history and still be a yeah. victim. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd use the language of victim, but like you can be yeah. on the wrong side of history and still be traumatized. I think that Yeah. And I know you're using the victim like you're the victim of your own violence, but that I worry about I worry about like blurring the boundary. Right. Totally. Although we don't know what's gone on between him and Voldemort or what it was like living among the death eaters and 
Yeah, so who knows? Or like, I'm just guessing that he's probably had the Cruciatus curse done to him at some point. I'm guessing yeah. that's probably true of most of the Death Eaters, just because of the way it sounds like the organization is run. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. Yeah, Voldemort is very happy to cut off the arm of his yep. like current most loyal servant. So right. we have no reason to believe that he doesn't behave that way towards all the Death Eaters. Well, Matt, do you have a question back? Yeah. So, you know, at the end of this chapter, we see Neville reading this book of herbology. Neville is, I think he feels like he's been heard. He feels like he's been supported. He feels like he's been seen in a way that almost never happens at the school. Maybe has never before happened at the school, apart from like the end of the year meal at the end of book one, right? Like very few times do do leaders at the school look at Neville, acknowledge his experience and acknowledge his, his gifts. And this happened here with, with Barty Crouch Jr. So I think it's an intention impact question, right? Like, I think probably at least a significant portion of Barty Crouch was not intending Neville Longbottom's flourishing in any of this. Mm -hmm. But Neville was brought towards greater flourishing, as you said in the theme conversation, that this chapter is kind of a turning point for, for Neville. So was this was this good? Was what Barty Crouch did here to Neville good? And I think the answer I'm going to say is, I think it was bad pedagogy. I think he could have arrived at a different way. But if impact is what we measure, not intention, I think this has, was a positive impact for, for Neville. He did get this book of arborology. He does feel seen. I think in the long run, it does actually help him to flourish. And so I guess it's a good. But I don't feel great about that answer. What do you think, Vanessa? I don't know, Matt. I'm just imagining... Neville realizing later that Barty Crouch Jr. was using him and that because we are going to find out that Barty Crouch Jr. gives him this book so that he can read about gillyweed so that he can offer Harry gillyweed in the second task. It's like a brilliant plan on Barty Crouch Jr.'s part. He's playing, you know, 12th dimensional chess here. Um, but and I can just imagine Neville in particular looking back and feeling so used and feeling so dumb for having believed this. And the reason that I think it it's okay and it pays off is because in the meantime, Professor Sprout does genuinely believe that he's the best student. And I think that that relationship is probably flourishing. But I can just really imagine, I, and this is me projecting myself, like yeah. when I look back and realize I was being used in some way, I feel so stupid. And so I think the answer is both. Yeah, I think you're right. I had, honestly, I had forgotten that that, that 12th dimensional chess part of it, that, that, that the book is why Harry gets the gillyweed, which is why Harry is able to continue in the competition, which is why everything else that happens in the book happens. So you're right. I'd forgotten about that. And that really complicates it. I, but as you said, we also know that this is the chapter where Neville's confidence in this particular gift really starts to take off. Yeah. And he becomes a professor of herbology, right? Like, Yeah. So it's, it's probably both. It's probably both. But but Havruta means you got to answer. So that was my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this really lovely Kavruta with me, and I'm really grateful. This is such a thorny topic that I've never been able to wrap my head around Barty Crouch Jr. as Moody, and I've I feel like we've gotten me at least part of the way there. So thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. I, you're right. The where we've gotten is it's a mess we can't understand. <laughs> and I feel like that's a good answer. That's where we should always end when doing scriptural practices. I feel like we were able to diagram at least what 60% of the mess is. Yeah. So progress. Yeah. Progress. That's right. So, Vanessa, now is the time in the episode when we're going to offer blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Sirius Black, not only for his letter and for his like immediacy of I'm coming, but also that he ends his letter with like, I hope that Ron and Hermione are well. I'm a big believer in that line in an email <laughs> of like, hope you're well, hope your family is well. It seems to me to be a really humble thing to do. I think often emails and letters and phone calls, we expect responses and we never know what's going on in someone else's life and that maybe this email or letter is not of the utmost importance to you right now because you're not doing well for whatever reason. And so I just really love that Sirius, even in this emergency and with this sense of urgency, is like, also, I know that there are people who you care about up there, and I hope that they're doing okay, too. What about you? Uh, this week, I would like to bless Lavender Brown. The moment I want to bless her for is getting caught, like, working on something else in class, which is, I just think, part of being a student and part of being in class. You know, I'm a teacher, and I see when sometimes when students are distracted or doing something else, and as long as they're not distracting other people, like I usually just kind of let it go because I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's important to you. I don't know what else is happening, right? <laughs> right. Like you might need to to be doing the thing you're doing for the next five or 10 minutes. As long as you're not distracting other people, then it's not, it's, it's not really concerning me. And also like it can be hard to like pay attention to one thing for 90 minutes in a class. Like if you need five minutes to look at something else and that will help your attention in the remaining 70 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever, uh, that's fine. So for all of our listeners who have been in that place where <laughs> you're doing something not too bad, but someone like your teacher catches you and calls you out, blessings. <laughs> so everybody, we're going to take the next couple of weeks off for the holidays. We always think that AJ deserves a break. And so we're going to take two weeks off, but we will be back. We're going to be reading book four, chapter 15, Bobaton and Durmstrang through the theme of creativity. Ooh, well. Can't wait to tell you a story about a time that I was inspired by a muse. Our announcements before we give our thanks are that we have a live show in January at Sixth and I Synagogue in Washington, D.C. We have a tarot, herb, and myth class also starting in January of 2023. We also have a Emily Dickinson pilgrimage on sale. Our merch is on sale. And our Not Sorry Summer Camp also has a sale going on right now. You can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramaz. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. Special thanks this week to Professor Daryl Van Tongeren, who came to talk to us about intellectual humility, and to the Greater Good Science Center for supporting this podcast. Thanks also to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and Hannah Rehack. Funding for this episode was provided by UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center as part of its expanding awareness of the science of intellectual humility initiative, supported by the John Templeton Foundation. What's a good one for when they show up? Um, encounter or...
Beginnings. Or, or should I just choose one of these? Beginnings. Relations. Encounter is great because I can talk about the time that I saw an alien. <laughs> <laughs> 